Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. One only gets to be first once, except for maybe this time. It seems we got carried away, as you sometimes do the first time. Today, the second half of our revisit to show number one of Beyond Well, featuring Courtney Hameister, Dr. Jenna Lejeune, and Dr. Brian Goff. Donuts, sex, camping versus glamping anxiety. It was all in the first half of show number one. We hope you enjoy part two. Um, Courtney's book, Okay, Fine, Whatever, the year I went from being afraid of everything to only being afraid of most things is so human. And part of what Courtney does is she takes on all these very frightening things like um, cuddling, um, Brazilian waxing. (laughs) I think you do something in a float tank or maybe you thought about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the most important thing that I thought was that you actually started dating. Mm-hmm. How has being in a committed relationship changed the level of anxiety you feel day to day? Well, I think that in some ways it's lowered it and in some ways it's it's made it worse, <laughs> you know, but yeah. I, I think that it's th- that's what's that's how books and movies lie to us, right? That you get into a relationship and everything is solved. Right. And and for me, you know, it took me a very long time to 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 be in a long-term relationship in my life. And I, and I think that, um, the problem is if you're an anxious person, when you do get into a relationship, all you're looking for is the next reason that he's going to leave you Mm. or not love you Mm. or, um, and, and I think that for me, what I realized was, uh, I think some people get into relationships and they think, um, oh, I need to make myself better so that this person will continue to love me. They, they, you know, get in, they read a lot of self-help books. And, and I think that actually what I needed to do when I got into a relationship was instead change the way that I felt about my flaws. Like I just, I needed to learn to recognize how, how broken we all are. Mm. And, um, and that, and, and, and recognize sort of all the reasons why this person was with me. Mm. Um, but just really, mm-hmm. I think that that was, that was really, uh, but, and, and I recognized that if I didn't do that, I would be miserable throughout the entire relationship because I would just be waiting for all of the shoes to drop, you know? <laughs> like, so one of the wonderful things about having Jenna and Brian here, and I, and I can just see wheels turning is that we'll spend the next half an hour uh, talking about anxiety, talking about some of um, Courtney's experiences. And it occurred to me, I don't want to ask you to leave if you want to be here for that. But if you have something to rush off to, you can go. Okay. <laughs> which is which is your preference? Um, I'd ra- I, you know, I'd, I'd rather hear it probably. All right. <laughs> you know, I'd rather probably. be in the room. I like that. It's, well. it's, not, it's not, honestly, we didn't, we didn't structure this to talk about you, but because I always think it's so much easier grounded in story, grounded in real human experience to, to begin a discussion of really what is anxiety? How does it manifest? How does it affect us? 54, 45 million. That was the 45 million people report extreme anxiety. And I think it's at a peak. Do you notice in your practice, I want both of you to answer this, a sort of increase in the level of anxiety being presented? Jenna, you go first. Well, I mean, I I do think we're living in a culture that tends to kind of fear monger and um, 
like intensify negative emotions in various ways that we do that. So I definitely do see people kind of more on edge and and just sort of like fearful about the world and and that. Um, I think some of the stuff that Courtney's talking about, and Courtney, I'm I'm just like sitting over here and I'm like squirming in my seat because I'm so excited about some of the stuff that you're talking about. I'm like, yes, yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. No, that's no, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and I think some of the stuff that you're talking about is so unbelievably just like part of the human condition and you have it in this more maybe sort of um, intensified form that allows us to see sort of maybe what we all kind of experience. Like when you're talking about being in in a new relationship Mm. and how that both can decrease and increase your anxiety, I'm thinking, well, hell, of course it can because you know what? We only get anxious about things we care about. And once you start like – caring more about somebody, well, then of course you're worried like, well, maybe they're going to leave me. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe I'm too this way or not enough that way. So of course it's going to like increase all of those things. And that very, oh my God, I know this for me personally, that very human instinct of, well, maybe if I make myself perfect enough or good enough, then I won't be anxious about this person leaving me. And there is no like perfect enough or good enough. Um, so I was super excited about that yeah. part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Brian, t- talk about the change that you're seeing in clients. I've heard a lot of people reporting almost a worldly or political-induced mm-hmm. anxiety. Mm-hmm. Is that a thing for, for, for real? Well, you know, the, the question about has it increased, I don't, I don't, I'm not really aware that it has increased, but I think that's because I'm not out there sampling everybody. Yeah. I, my caseload is pretty full and has been full before, so the people who come to me are anxious, and I don't know how much <laughs> they represent you know, the population. But I will say on that point that there has been a theme that is uh, a lot more prevalent, that we're living in uncertain times and we're living in times where there's a lot of stuff going on within our country and globally that people are generally uh, distressed about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to get to some of the building blocks because I think my hope for this show is that I think we learn a lot of things and cram for SATs and have coaches for sports and for many other things that we never end up using in our life. Uh, but we don't have any kind of emotional resilience or EQ training or there's no mm-hmm. classes that give us mm-hmm. an insight into our inner world. And I'm really hoping that especially people who are listening today because they have anxiety can come away going, how do I start thinking about the fact that I get to be a person who experiences the world this way? Do you have any advice for that person, Jenna? Well, again, I think, Courtney, you sort of hit the nail on the head on one of the things that you talked about. And this is just sort of my take on it, but Rather than working to try and not be anxious all of the time, one of the things you said was helpful was this like noting process. And kind of my way of understanding how that sort of thing works is you're not trying to, okay, calm down, calm down. You shouldn't be anxious. Mm. You're simply putting words to your experience. But it was really interesting how you said it. You didn't say, okay, so I had this thought and now I'm terribly, horribly anxious and it's really bad. You said, I had this thought 
and now there's a tightness in my chest, and now I'm experiencing kind of a tingly feeling. So you're naming the actual experience without putting all of those evaluations, like, and this is terrible and horrible, and I have to get rid of it. And sort of paradoxically, by simply naming your experience, oftentimes that tends to sort of decrease how horrible it is Wow, for how us. interesting. Yeah. Brian, similar, similar ideas? Well, actually, have you tried Bikram yoga? <laughs> <laughs> it changed my life. It changed your life. Minutes. It's, it's a lot. It's pretty fantastic. <laughs> You'll no, really actually, like that as it's well. It's so sweaty. <laughs> it's so sweaty. No, actually, a number of the things that you you mentioned, I was really resonating with, and I and and that idea of, in so many of the examples that you talked about, a thought shows up, and and your body responds as though that thought is absolutely the case and because you think it it must be so mm-hmm. right even even down to like the i take a prozac i mean that's kind of what placebo effect is about is mm-hmm. i'm taking this thing that's supposed to help mm-hmm. boom you know kind of business and and my experience is we so often look from our thoughts rather than at them i don't happen to have glasses on today i'm wearing contacts but you know, I have had glasses on and forgot that they were there. I'm just looking from them. Hmm. And if, and the temptation is with thoughts, it's like, I must make that thing go away in order to be all right. But that's kind of taking the thought more seriously than it necessarily requires to be taken seriously. If we can just hold the glasses out six inches or so, they still affect what we see, but we can also see that we're looking at glasses. So just that idea of, I notice a thought just shifts it a little bit. Just a little bit. And and I think that that happens even when we don't necessarily believe the thought. Mm. You know, it's just that's how we are with thoughts. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I sometimes do rather irreverently with people when I first see them is I'll say, think of a think of a person that's really important in your life. And I ask for their name. And then I'll say, you know, now I'd like you to say this. I'd like you to say this sentence out loud. I hope that so-and-so gets in a terrible car accident. And they have that right there. See that she thing just, you did I wish this were being filmed, Courtney. Yeah. It was just like, <laughs> because it's a, it's a Bikram yoga look. Really. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and it's like people have that reaction. There's a, there's a rougher version of it where I say, think of somebody in your family who's younger than you of the opposite sex. And I'll say, now say this sentence out loud. I want to have sex with so-and-so. And they have that expression. Exactly. <laughs> and the thing that I quickly point out before they like fire me and run away is I'm like, do you see what happened? Like, look what showed up. And they weren't, they weren't, uh, that's not what you want. They're just words. And moreover, they're not even your words. I gave them to you. Wow. And just because you say them, you have this like emotional, visceral kind of reaction. Well, okay, this leads me to ask the question, and I think this of so many of my friends who suffer more, that I also believe that they kind of have a greater bandwidth. My friends like Courtney who have anxiety, who might have depressive periods, also seem incredibly more empathetic than a lot of people, way faster. Uh, There seems to be something in almost like the makeup of people who tend to suffer that they also have these extraordinary gifts on the other side of it. So do we know enough about how anxiety is actually formed in the body to know, is it for brains that have particular capacity or has that actually been ruled out as a theory? Jenna? 
Oh, ask me about the brain. Um, the the answer. <laughs> yeah, Jenna, when it, go ahead. Yeah, the answer when it comes to do we know about this in the brain? The real answer is no, no. no yeah. We kind of don't. Um, and at least from how I view the world and sort of my perspective of the things, we we can't separate the brain from our experience. Mm -hmm. Like there's no such thing as, well, this is about the brain and not based on your experience. So no, we don't know that. So so what you're leading me to is we have to take into the quotient, Courtney's trauma, Courtney's the way she was raised, Courtney, her own particular place of of where she finds peace and joy and and so much of that is personality built from zero to five. Yeah, and the fact Courtney's been intimately living with somebody with anxiety for what twenty one years now. Like you know, you on a daily basis are interacting with somebody, hopefully somebody you care about yourself. That's like dealing with anxiety. So if you have that much experience mm-hmm. with dealing with somebody that, oh, it's, it's hard to suffer in this way. Yeah. Like my hope is that you become more empathic or attuned to that mm-hmm. when you see it mm-hmm. in other people as well. I do think one of, and, and there is data around this, it is easier for people to, in general, easier for people to um, have compassion for others than it is their own suffering. Mm. And so oftentimes when I'm working with folks, they will have compassion and empathy for other people who are suffering, whether that's with anxiety or depression or whatever. But they haven't seen themselves as a person that has anxiety that they also have a relationship with. And so part of my work is helping people like – what kind of relationship do you want to have with yourself given that you are also somebody that suffers? Yeah. Wow. Sure. What about that? The um, I have it. I know when I get depressed and I've gone through several really depressive episodes that I am so pissed at myself. I don't have a lot of compassion or time or I'm just like, get the off the couch, you know? There's mm-hmm. the feeling that that when we get a cold, we're all like, oh, poor me, bring me some soup. But when it is some sort of of thought disorder or some sort of behavior disorder, we're really hard on ourselves. Absolutely. What do you tell people, Brian, in terms of allowing them to see themselves as maybe they would treat their daughter or their their toddler? Well, I do I do think that that we're like that, and we end up having kind of our original distress, and then we have distress about distress. We have fear about being afraid. Mm, yeah. We're like super sad about being sad. Yeah. We're ashamed that we wrestle with shame. And um, and it's I think it's very hard experientially to believe that we're all sort of in it. And these are just human experiences. These are normal experiences. The business about uh, compassion, I mean, one of the exercises – that sometimes uh, I and I know other therapists will do is uh, sort of imagining what what is it you would say, how is it that you would want to show up for somebody else or a young, you know, if I have lots of anxiety, then imagine that I'm talking to this little boy mm. who's maybe the age that I first started being really aware of being anxious mm. and this kid is scared and he's saying a lot of the sorts of things that I say to myself. Um, how would I want to show up for him? Mm. What would I want to say to him? What sort of message would be relevant, um, 
maybe compassionate. Maybe I want to tell him to get his act together, but probably not. I mean, or then I guess you could flip it. Imagine saying to that boy the sorts of things that you say to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, what kind of a what kind of an adult are you to hate on him like that? One of the best practices that I ever had around that was actually naming that voice who comes out with those really oh, shitty yeah. things because yeah. it helped me so much because now that I have that name and it's the name of a person I don't like very much, <clears throat> uh, when I say, hello, Priscilla, there you are again, it really flicks my brain to like, whoa, Priscilla is such a bitch. I created her, you know, I took the name from someone else, but wow, that person, that, that voice is so critical, so much more critical than I would ever be of another human being. And yet I unload that Priscilla voice on myself. But then we can get into this trap of getting critical of being critical. (laughs) Right? Yeah, and now so, you're judging, you're judging. Right. Like, being <laughs> so non-judgmental. Right. No, but yeah. one, actually one thing you can do with that, that, um, so I have also kind of, you know, uh, physicalized my self-critic yeah. and I kind of make it a bit of a cartoon character. So mine is the little guy from the Muppets that sits up in the, in the balcony, <laughs> like, you know, and he's just like, he's kind of ornery and he's like saying a bunch of stuff that's not all that helpful, even if it's kind of accurate. And if I can sort of like see my mind, that part of my mind is that like little guy, I'm sure he has a name, but that guy, <laughs> then I'm just sort of like, you're funny. And I'm going to go back to paying attention to what's important yeah, here. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's part of, you're writing a book right now on the idea around values-based uh, therapy. Is that the yeah, way that I would yeah. describe it? And the yeah. idea is we're all going to acknowledge we all, we're all in this soup. We all have this stuff from one degree to another. And then how do we get to the next plane of actually enjoying our life? Yeah, it, it was actually super related, I think, to what Courtney was talking about and her book. Because my guess is, so you spent almost 10 years on Livewire kind of pushing through the hard anxiety. Just mm-hmm. like do it and it's hard and you're just, I can just, maybe this isn't your experience, but my guess is something like, come on, come on, I can do this. I, I can do this. And then, you know, so you had plenty of experience with that. But then you took this entire year of doing things where you're intentionally putting yourself in a place with Mm -hmm. anxiety. But I would say that what may be the difference between those two is that the things you did in this last year were more sort of from a willing place. They were more like in the service of something that meant something to you versus like, come on, I should, I have to. Mm. I'm going to do this to beat my anxiety. Exactly. Uh-huh. And that's what I think of with values. It's about like letting the things that are actually important to you, like, hey, if you want to be somebody that gets to go live your life and sometimes get a Brazilian wax for whatever reason that might be important or just like whatever, like allow yourself to do those things, but just like pushing through the painful stuff just to prove that you can do it. Like I don't see any value in suffering for the sake of suffering, Mm. but suffering in the service of getting to have a full, meaningful, vibrant life. Hell yeah, that's worth it. And I'm imagining that's a little bit of the distinction you might've had. I'm not sure though. Courtney, 
it? You, is that is does that ring true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the majority of the stuff that I did, I think the sensory deprivation tank, going to the professional cuddler, um, <laughs> uh, signed Brian up for that gig. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. Um, I think that it was. What was interesting about it was, oh, I just thought I'm going to do these things that that put me in this kind of in this place where it makes me sort of mildly uncomfortable to try to teach my brain that everything's going to be okay. And I think that, I think that being adventurous is sort of a muscle and my muscle was atrophied Mm -hmm. for sure in that area. But I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I tried to do, but, and what ended up happening was I kept doing these things that were clearly pointed at trying to, to, learn more about a certain aspect of my own experience and personality where it was like, I went wow, to the cuddler because, so cool. you know, I, I have had this, you know, this, I, I thought that I needed affection too much, even though, because I had, I, I had not had physical affection for so long in my life. I was concerned that I, I needed it too much. And, mm-hmm. you know, I went to a sex club, which was, you know, this insane experience. I went to build your own burrito night at a uh, club Sesso. Um, is that a euphemism or an actual sex club? They first the potluck. The <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, they ran out of tortillas, which was oh. devastating. But um, come on, energy. <laughs> <laughs> right, but, but so yeah, and I dated polyamorous guys, so so it was like all of this stuff to kind of test my my personal boundaries and try to learn a little bit more about myself. Um, I honestly of all of the experiences thought okay I'm claustrophobic so I don't know if I can do the the sensory deprivation tank but the build your burrito thing (laughs) anybody can do that anybody can build a burrito I'm gonna get adventuresome and try that one I love the idea that it's like there were it seems like there were some places where I'm gonna I'm gonna practice disobeying my mind Mm. you know just realizing Mm -hmm. that that this word machine up here thinks it's the most important part of my body. But let's remember who's telling me that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I I do want to ask specifically because I'd never heard um, uh, Courtney describe this, this idea that she's going to do harm. Um, Is it, is the thinking that this is part of anxiety, that this is just a manifestation of so much anxiety in your body that the brain is kind of misfiring? Well, uh, once again, I'm asking you to be a neurologist. It's a brain question, and I'm going to say not like I'm we don't you, know. Not I'm only I'm going to get you a buzzer every right. time mm, I ask you a brain question. question. You can cut just, that. Yeah, but but <laughs> I would first of all, that's a, a super common um, kind of presentation of people who struggle with OCD is wow. having this kind of worry that they're going to harm somebody, they're going to kill somebody, they have harmed somebody. It's it's very common. And again, I would say that that is probably tied back to whatever is most important to you. Like if you were a sociopath, you wouldn't be sitting here where your mind wouldn't create these like worries about, oh, no, what if I harm somebody? Oh, no, what if I harm somebody? Like our brains start worrying about things, the things that are important to us. And so, you know, my guess is you cared about the kids that you were Mm -hmm. watching and, you know, you don't want to be a sociopath harming people my guess I'm hoping given that you're sitting next to me mm-hmm. um, but <laughs> and we didn't check your purse right yeah. I know but your mind will kind of go to well what's the worst possible thing I could be what's the worst possible thing that could happen and then it latches on to that 
And that's the thing that, you know, it sort of like starts worrying about. So it's it's really very common. Wow. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I the, mean, I, the term is, right, the, ter- the, 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 the geeks in the basement call it ego dystonic. Yeah. Oh, so I it's sort that. of like the opposite of yeah. so whatever it is, it's sort of like, oh, actually, the stuff I care about is usually the opposite of that thing. Yeah. Yeah. All I know is that you should read Courtney's book, honestly, because it made into a movie. And I want your name up on that billboard. And I want this (laughs) thing in New York to be your ultimate dream because you deserve it. Thank you. Okay, fine. Whatever the year I went from being afraid of everything to only being afraid of most things. I love you, Courtney. Love you too. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 